This is the captain. I'm speaking to every man aboard this ship. In the past few hours, many things have happened. But rumors of nuclear attacks and a third world war are totally untrue. We have no reason to believe that any aggression has been taken against our home family. I believe that what we have stumbled across is not man-made, but a phenomena of nature, one that can't be explained. This phenomenon is a storm which the Nimitz went through less than 18 hours ago. The storm has had some effect on time, as we know it. It, it created a portal, a door into another era. Today is December the 7th, 1941. I'm sure we're all aware of the significance of this state and this place in history. We're about to fight a battle that was lost before most of you were born. This time, with God's help, it's going to be different. Good luck. everybody, welcome to Smoking and Drinking in Space. This is a sci-fi podcast from a couple guys who think they know sci-fi. Yeah, I'm do. Jason. I'm Red. And today we are discussing 1980s movie The Final Countdown starring Kirk Douglas, Martin Sheen, and Catherine Ross. Hell yes we are. But first, uh, we're going to go what? over some sci-fi news. Do you have news. any this week? No. No? Nothing happened. No, nothing happened. Nothing, nothing at happened all. in sci-fi. No, straight <laughs> to the movie. Okay, we're gonna. I promise we'll get. So, do you like this movie? I, I am. I am a skosh fond of it. Okay, well let, let's delay your gratification for a bit. Like um, if I had a nickel every time I heard that. <laughs> so. Uh, one of the news, it's not directly sci-fi related, but it is sci-fi adjacent because it's some, it's something you enjoy while you're watching or, or consuming sci-fi is planters is bringing back their cheese balls for a limited time. I never knew they stopped. Yeah. So you can't find those big cardboard cans of cheese balls anymore. They, there's some generics out there from some other yeah, companies. Yeah. But they're not as good. They're not the planter's cheese balls that you sat there Why'd and ate stop? a big five. Are they going to turn this into a McRib thing? Oh, I don't know. Hopefully not. Like every, you know, now for only a limited time, come pick up our balls. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so. Do you, you think we now- should have a picture of Chester Cheetah with like an inappropriately tight pair of shorts <laughs> on... <laughs> It ain't easy being cheesy. <laughs> I don't You're know what to say it. to that. I, You're I, thinking it. It's I'm thinking there. it's yeah. That. The question is. The question is. Should they come up with two different kinds, the original, and then maybe have a cheese grater next to him where he's like manscaping? Oh. <laughs> so I've got yeah. more images in my in, in my I'm head. I'm an idea that, man. I'm yeah. an idea man. Your ideas are toxic. Yeah, they are. So, as I was saying, um, you can now sit down with your favorite sci-fi show in a big five-pound canister of cheese balls and eat yourself to death. Yeah. Just like you could in the 70s and 80s. And go to the Olive Garden and get one of them cheese graters. (laughs) Oh, God. Just say when, baby. Just say when. Got to make it smooth like a pair of dolphins. Oh. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, other news. So we've talked to the last couple of weeks about um, some Star Trek shows returning to the air. There's uh, rumored to be four new shows in, in development right now. I used to be such a Trekkie. And one of the rumors, the major rumors that's stirring around one or more of these Star Trek shows is that Sir Patrick Stewart is going to be uh, returning. It would take his- something... It would take something on that level to get me back to Star Trek. 
Yeah, yeah, I agree. But one of the rumors is that they're going to kind of do like a, a TNG revival. They're going to bring oh. the old cast back together. If they do that, I would definitely be interested. Oh, yeah. Uh, the, other, the other possibility is he's going to do the voice of uh, Captain Picard in an animated series. So, Not sure that I'm as excited about that mm, one, but I'd definitely it depends give it on how. Honestly, it depends on how well it's drawn for me. I could see. I I have. I am a f- big fan of animation. I like it. I mean, throw 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 me some good Batman. I I, I like watching those. The Killing Joke was good. What if it was um, drawn like the old seventies original series show that they had? Ugh, no, 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 no. <laughs> In fact, when my son was itty bitty, I was. Very disappointed in a lot of the shows, the way they were drawn. I mean, some they were funny, but it seemed like they were thrown together very haphazard because they just, you know, okay, this week we're going to draw an entire cartoon. And when you compare, say, like, one of my favorites when he was growing up was that Ed and Eddie. Right? Look at yeah. all the chickens, Ed. I like it. You know, Ed, Ed and Eddie <laughs> was freaking great, but it was drawn like shit. Well, I mean, compare it, it that had to a the style. Warner Brothers, Bugs Bunny. I, I don't think know? Ed, Ed, and Eddie were was was poorly drawn. I mean, it definitely had a, a a distinct style, but I think the animation was good. Yeah, but the kids next door, SpongeBob, Powerpuff Girls, all these cartoons that my kid watched, they were not drawn as well. And I well, think it no. was done simply for time. So I, I think I think you're. I think you're just you're switching up quality for artistic style. So there's definitely different artistic styles in some of those more modern cartoons, but I think they were animated very well. Um, SpongeBob think, SpongeBob has a very cartoony style. It's a very simplistic, uh, cartoony style, but I mean it's it's meant for kids. Whereas you're looking at some of the new Warner Brothers animations that has a more sophisticated kind of dark style, and I think it's just as well animated. Now, go back to some of our childhood cartoons with, like, Transformers and He-Man and... They were drawn uh, better. Thundar the Barbarian. They were not drawn better. The animation well, Thundar was not. The, thun- the animation was not as good. Uh, the animation was a lot of still cell with just a, a little bit of, of movement. I mean, you would have, you know, 12, 15, 20 frames of just a still cell and their mouth moving. Right, right. You don't get that okay. kind of animation okay. style now. I would now, hope the, that if they're going to do a Star Trek animation, they would take the time to put some, some, some energy into it. Like maybe make like a three-hour movie. Four hour, you know, miniseries type thing and chop it up into 20 minute little whatever so they can throw in their commercials. I think that would be cool, but I would like to see something more along the line of anime quality, you yeah, know, like I mean, Ninja Scroll. So, yeah, you, you want that distinct artistic anime yeah, style. Yeah. Vampire okay. Hunter D. Yeah, so I mean, so you, you you like that style, not necessarily the animation quality, because even even Vampire Hunter D had some animation quality issues. I mean, that's that's a sure. fairly. The but fairly wasn't that drawn movie. by a single artist though? I don't think it or was am a I single thinking, artist. Or am I thinking Akira? I thought there oh, was no. one of the classics that was done by just a single guy. It took him like four years. Uh, I don't know. Not that I know of, but you may be right. I'd have to look into that. But yeah, that's my thing. Maybe it is just a matter of style. I just remember thinking, God, this is all so simplistic. And I guess cartoony. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Like the new PlayStation games. Um, I've got a friend that uh is all excited about this new game coming out or that just barely came out in Detroit. I guess you could call that a sci fi news thing. And I've been looking at some of the uh, I guess you call them trailers for the game. Right. That looks pretty cool. I honestly think before I leave this earth, we're going to have full movies with no people, just voice talent. We already have that. No, but I mean, I mean like, you know, like iconic. This will be the character. I mean, can you imagine what the world would be? What would the paparazzi do? There is no longer an actor. We no longer need stuntmen. 
you know, <laughs> I mean, we're not going to find, you're not going to find so-and-so. Look at all the weight they've gained since their last movie. Yeah, pff, fuck that. It's a cartoon character. It's a computer-generated thing. I mean, that would be awesome. Like, Avatar level, that would be just so fucking cool for a Star Trek. That would be. All right, so, the final countdown, 1980. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Are you ready for the pod? S.S. Nimitz. Let's do this. You ready for the pod crawl? I am ready. Crawl me, baby. Make me crawl. We can call it, I don't know, say a pod crawl. The pod crawl. Pod crawl. Pod crawl. Pod crawl. Excellent. Insert it deep. Pod crawl. Kind of like a space suppository full of information. Opening shot is straight up a Tomcat butthole. The love child of Emilio Estevez and Charlie Sheen boards a chopper bound for the Nimitz in a powder blue suit. Definitely not Navy issue. Spartacus brings his planes home. The weather turns sour and an intruder comes for a landing. The Nimitz have the Russians in the radio shack get the traps out. Captain calls for Black Cloud to ask about the weather and code talk the rest of his planes in. Black Cloud finds a glowing flashy butthole in the storm as the ship net fishes for Corsair 2s. The Nimitz sails straight into the poop chute as everyone on board gets anal-related tinnitus. General Quarters is called, and the bridge crew neckbeard guy straps on his helmet. Captain Yellen admits he has no idea what's going on. Lasky sits around and takes up space. The Great Gatsby floats upon a serene Pacific as FDR drones on the radio. Senator Chapman's assistant, Laurel Scott, does all the work while the men oogle her and drink scotch. Gatsby, this is Ghost Rider requesting a flyby. Right. The captain has a historical revelation. It seems Tomcats have a hard time keeping pace with Zeros. The Zero pilots don't seem to like the writings of F. Scott Fitzgerald. The CAG wants to get wet with Laurel. The Japanese fleet has deployed secret cloaking technology called Grainy Cam. Captured Japanese pilot takes to M16s like a natural. The senator acts like a common senator and makes demands to be flown to the mainland. The CAG gets stranded on a Hawaiian beach with Laurel in what appears to be either a master plan or a colossal procedural fuck-up. The flashy space-time butthole makes another appearance, and the Nimit tries to outrun it. Captain Spartacus gets chewed out for getting lost in the Pacific. For as smart as Lasky is, it still doesn't occur to him that he was sent on this trip to recover a dog by the person who was stranded back in time. Old Cag and Old Lindsay get Charlie back, Lasky is dumbfounded, and roll Nimit's montage credits. Straight into the danger zone, baby. <laughs> I, uh, I tried... Not to make any Top Gun references, know, but you can't but you can't have an F fourteen movie without Top Gun you references. Can't, so. Especially when you're going through a tunnel of love. <laughs> the only thing missing are some evil seagulls. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh shit. Uh so this was I, I, I really enjoyed this movie. I mean there were a few things um, oh, yeah. that were weird about it. So one of the first things I noticed is I had to clean my glasses several times because I took my contacts out and was watching this with glasses on. And uh, I cleaned them several times because it seemed like several of these shots were filmed with Vaseline smeared all over the camera. And then it occurred to me, they filmed this on the Nimitz. So they had to kind of buzz out some of the areas that they filmed. They did. So they you only did. have this small focus area around a uh, character's head and <laughs> everything else is kind of blurry. And, uh, I thought it was just right. me and it, it took me probably about 15, 20 minutes to figure out what in the hell was going on. Yeah, it's crazy. You know, I've been to a few air shows and I remember one one time it just blew my mind. I was like, 15, 16 years old, and they were letting uh, the spectators actually sit for like five bucks. They'd let you sit in the cockpit of an F-15. And, oh, man, I was so excited. So I actually crawled into the cockpit of an F-15. I'm sitting there going, man, this is amazing. And then I saw an old dog down the flight line, an F-4 Phantom II. I'm like, oh, I got to have me some of that. <laughs> and I walk over, and I'm like, hey, man, where's the little... Uh, little ladder here you know we'll get inside the f4 and i'm like oh we can't let you do that and i'm like why and they said because we have top secret you know stuff in there 
Like, you're kidding me. You let me crawl around in an F-15, but I can't get inside an F-4? And they said, yeah, there's stuff inside there that is still classified. <laughs> a lot of the classified stuff inside the F-15, you're not going to see. It's, you know, behind the dashboard and whatnot. Right. So, yeah, I can totally see them fuzzing things out, you know, for that. I mean, nowadays it wouldn't matter. You know, a lot of that's antiquated. We've got a lot better stuff now on our ships. Oh, right. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 there. I, I just thought it was kind of cool. I was so jazzed when this movie came out. This was the first time I saw this. I think it what was it ABC movie, a Saturday night movie of the week or something like that. Was it? I thought it was uh, yeah. an actual theatrical release. I remember the first time I saw it was on TV. Well, let's do some on-the-fly research. Do it! Let's hear that zipper drop, baby. <laughs> uh, let's see. No, it was a it was a theatrical release. Wow. Promoted okay, as well, a summer blockbuster. Well, my family was cheap. <laughs> Released at theaters August 1st, 1980. It was novelized by Martin Caden. I think the last sci-fi movie I saw in theaters that was close to this, I remember there was Empire, Star Trek, the motion picture. Yeah. Um... I don't know if this is on our list, but it just popped into my head because of the time frame. Hangar 18. Uh, Hangar 18 is not on the list, but we can certainly add that. Give me just one second. You get to see it. Hangar 18. Do you remember Kolchak, the Night Stalker? I do. Yeah, he's in it. Is he really? He's in it. And it's all about a Roswellian crash of an alien craft. (laughs) <laughs> and the steps the military takes to uh, cover it up. Nice. Well, that's on the list. So it's a good we one. We do our random one. draw. It might be the next one. Or it might be the 66th one. Who knows? It might be. I just know that number 69 has got to be a special film. Uh, we're not up to 69 yet. Oh, but we need to be. Because it needs to be a special film. A special film? Do you have uh, a special film in mind for the 69th episode? Uh, I'll have to check out Pornhub. I mean, the database, and we'll see. <laughs> All right, so um, interesting to see Zeros and F8 or F-14s in the same airspace. Um, Actually, I thought it was interesting to see uh, first-gen E2C Hawkeyes and Crusaders. Yeah, I mean, Crusaders. Definitely, that that was a Crusader they sent out to do the the camera flyby over Pearl, and that was the last gunship that the United States military ever had. And when I say gunship, I mean its primary weapons were cannons. Not I didn't missiles. see a Crusader. I saw some Corsair twos. I saw some intruders. If you go back to the to the first part of the film, he says, "I want you to launch a Crusader." At the very beginning, they launched the twin prop aircraft first. Right, the Hawkeye. With the, with, yeah, the E-2C. And then the very next aircraft that launches, a lot of people confuse the Crusader with the Corsair II. Crusader's a little bit longer, and it's more narrow. Okay, it, so I probably thought that was a Corsair II yeah. just from the shot, and I thought it yeah. was probably just running escort. Yeah, no, that's, a, that's, that's an actual Crusader. My ROTC commander in high school was a Crusader pilot in Vietnam, and uh, that's, that's when I learned all about it. And it was, it was primarily, it was the last aircraft that they had that was a gunship. It was really cool. Yeah, I liked all the... Uh... I liked all the aircraft montages that they put in, um, especially the. I don't know why, but I've got this spot in my heart for the intruders, and I have no oh, idea yeah, why. It's a it's, great it's, aircraft. It's it's, it's not ugly. a flashy aircraft, but no. it just it, that I, is an ugly dog. I don't know why I like it so much. Shit. And I like F-14s too. Of course, the F-14 was the aircraft, and when I was growing up, but. I thought it was I thought it was especially cruel that you know the F14 eventually took over the strike capabilities of the intruder and then they delegated the the intruder as as basically a, a tanker 
plane to uh, right, fuel F-14s in flight. I think they still use, uh, maybe in some reserve units, I know that there is an EWO version, Electronic Warfare. There's an uh, EW version of the, of the Intruder. And I want to say they still use it. I don't know if they still use the Shrike missile system. Um, but they are, is it Shrike or Harm that was the anti-radar missile system in NAM? I think it was Shrike. And then uh, they went to the Harm. And I think that there's a reserve Air National Guard unit out of Minnesota or Wisconsin that uh, uses Wild Weasel F-4s. I think it's the last squadron of F-4s that we still operate. Um, and I think that the Prowler also does some wild weasel work now. They're, they're really overworking the F-18s. In fact, I read an article not too long ago uh, out of the Pentagon that the Navy, because of the problems with the new Lightning coming out, they actually pulled some F-18s out of storage. Ha, huh, Right. And had to get those back up in the air because the lightning is less than stellar at the moment. Although it looked really good in the Green Lantern movie. That thing kicks some ass. Well, the Green Lantern movie. The last I heard, they retired the intruder back in the 90s. So there may be some reserve units that still fly them. And I'm sure there's other countries that still fly some intruders. If Yeah, well, I think there's just reserves. Unless they didn't sell the intruder, the intruder may be one of those aircraft that they never sold to another country. But um, possibly, but yeah, that subsonic warhorse, she's she's proved herself. But I thought it was funny that you know <laughs> the F-14s were following along the the, the zeros, and they they basically were having to. Uh, to do scissor maneuvers with their wings fully out so they oh, can yeah. fly slow enough to keep well, pace is, well, with the zeros. Let's, let's do some more research on the fly. Get the zipper ready. Okay. <laughs> Why don't you look up, uh, Google the stall speed for an F-14. Okay. I'm sure it's it's decent. I mean... Because the stall on, a, on an A6M, A6M2 is around 74 miles an hour. 65 miles an hour is the stall on a zero. Uh, let's see. And I would assume, at least as soon as, you know, they did their first flyby on those zeros, the zeros probably cranked up to full throttle, so they're probably yanking and banking around anywhere from 150 to 200 miles, 250 miles an hour because of the maneuvers. Right. So I don't know why they would have to scissor except for the benefit of the camera operator and the helicopter trying to keep up. Right. Because a zero can go flat and level 300, 330 miles an hour, no problem. And I want to say the optimum altitude for a radial engine on a zero, that Mitsubishi engine, is probably 16,000 feet. 15, oh, I can get to a stall speed. They may not have that, you know, published. That's still may classified. I know that the swept wing configuration was designed to increase the or decrease the stall speed so they could throw their wings out to. Uh, yeah, yeah. But, the variable, the variable geometry on the wings plus the the steam catapults would accelerate them to about 125 miles an hour for launch. So this, I would assume the stall on an F-14, I mean, she doesn't, she doesn't glide. She's not a glider. There is no yeah, I gliding. I don't see a V stall. But um, I'm pretty sure that that F-14 is going to start giving you issues if you drop below 120 miles an hour. Well, yeah. I mean, if that's... I mean, one of the—I mean, one of the first things that zero pilot should do if you've got a jet coming at you hard and nasty <laughs> is chop power and go chop low power and do a wingtip turn, man, and go low. Oh yeah, go real low. And of course, the F-14 pilot should just say, "Fine, drop down, go low. I'm gonna launch a. I'm gonna launch a, a, a either a sidewinder or a sparrow. I'd probably go oh, sparrow." Yeah. Yeah, I thought it was overkill that that second F-14 killed that Zero with a 
Sidewinder. With a missile. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I thought that was a little over. I mean, come on. And what was amazing was the amount of ammo coming out of that M61 Vulcan. I love the sound of just... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I'm pretty That's sure it. that Zero that got hit by that 20-millimeter Vulcan cannon wouldn't have just thrown some smoke out its ass. Oh, I'm pretty sure no. it would have split in two. Oh, hell no. But this is the thing, though, too. Those zeros, the standard weapon configuration for an A6M2 is you got a couple of seven mils on the, on the engine cowling on top, and you got a 20 mil in each wing. Right. So if they could have got a beat on one of them Tomcats, those 20 mils are very unforgiving rounds. Right, but they're, they That's don't That's why I a... like that one pilot saying, why are we playing with these guys? <laughs> Yeah, but they don't have a high fire rate, so they would have had to have been pretty accurate. And I'm not sure that they could have gotten a really good beat on those Tomcats. Yeah, no, no, more than likely not. But still, I thought it was great. That was absolutely gorgeous. Absolutely gorgeous. I loved the flying in that. That was a great, that was a good scene. And then the rest of the movie is nothing but deck operations. Right, yeah, character development, deck operations, and a whole lot of neck beards. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty crazy. Yeah, that 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 took me by surprise because I figured like most of the shots with you know all the extras were actual Nimitz crew members. They were, they were. I was like, oh my god, there's a bunch of bushy beards on this fucking ship. Yeah, they used to allow it. I wonder when that got scrapped. Oh, probably after the final probably countdown shortly after came that out. movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the entire concept of the firepower. I mean, just to try and put in perspective for some of the listeners that may be fans of the machinery, but they don't really know what these things can carry. An A-10 Warthog, one of my all-time favorite aircraft, fully loaded. It's a single-seat strike aircraft for the United States Air Force. It has the ability to have the same firepower as a World War II naval destroyer. That is a ship with a crew of 200 people, approximately. Cannons, torpedoes, depth charges, anti-aircraft guns, the whole nine yards. One A-10 Warthog can carry the same amount of destructive firepower. Yeah, but that thing's a beast. It is. Now, you take something like the A6 Intruder. It's not going to carry, because it doesn't have the gun. They don't have guns on the A6 unless they decided to put a, a gun pot on there, and I'm all for that. I'm sure the pilot would be, too. That would be a blast. Right. Pardon the pun. But the, the Intruder was a strike aircraft. Yeah, it's a strike aircraft. It's going to carry the snake eyes. That's, that's a bomb for the boys and girls. It's going to carry the snake eyes. It's going to carry the Mark 48s. It'll do whatever you need to do on the, on the ordinance. So you figure, all right, two A6s can do what one A10 can firepower-wise. And then you just start adding up how many aircraft do we have on a Nimitz-class carrier. And the question is, could a single Nimitz-class aircraft carrier defend against a fleet the size of the attack force that the Imperial Japanese Navy sent against the forces that we had at Pearl Harbor? Oh, easily. Absolutely it can. What would be the biggest threat to the Nimitz? The biggest threat in the Nimitz is probably... Did they have battleships in that carrier fleet? They did. So probably the battleships. Wrong. Really? Yeah. You got to remember our our buddy in the Navy. I don't know if we should drop his name or not, but he liked Uh, to push buttons. He'd say things and keep pushing them. You know who I'm talking about. Oh, that's right. That's right. They they had... But would those torpedoes really... I mean... Well, that's the thing. I so don't the, the know. C- the CBs have uh, AWS choppers. They do. But this is the thing. I don't know that the ordinance on Japanese submarines would be as effective against a carrier like that. However, I do think they would be the greatest threat to the Nimitz because one of the things I learned was that they listen, the ASW listens for the sound of the subs. Obviously. Well, but they also throw pings out. They do. They do. But when you throw out ping, you're also giving away location. Well, but it doesn't matter because you're in a fucking helicopter. You're you're in a helicopter. True. 
But one of the toughest things they're going to have is trying to hear the sound of electricity. And I've, I've been told by, you know, our mutual friend and a few others that the toughest thing that our modern Navy has to try and do is catch diesel boats because they're so much quieter. Spoiler alert, the hunt for Red October, when they supposedly did their sound cloaking thing with their magneto-hydrodynamic whatever water jet engine for the water, that's not what they would listen to. They're not listening for the screws. They'll, they'll pick up the screws if they can hear them. Well, but that's but, only if the screws start cavitating. Exactly. And they've got those screws designs are so top secret. You'll see a whole Los Angeles class or sea wolf out of the water and dry dock, and they've got a tarp over that screw. They don't want anybody seeing the screw design. But they listen for the, for the nuclear coolant noise, the water squishing around trying to keep that nuclear power plant cool. They don't, they don't listen. You know, they, they, would, they would have heard the Red October no problem so long as she's running her reactor. They'd have found the Red October no problem. So there goes the whole movie, boys and girls. Well, but that was have... that was the whole thing with the cap, caterpillar drive on the Red October. It was a it was a new way to mask some of that noise, right? Well, it masked the sound of the propellers. It did not mask the sound of the reactor, and oh. that's what they listened to. Oh, I thought it was I thought it was a new way that they used to mask the sound of the reactor. Nope, not at all. It, it just shut off the props, so you're not hearing the screws. There is zero cavitation. It's sucking in the water in the front, squirting it out the back. So oh, that so would make it really right. quiet. That's right. But it was like a water not engine. What, right. That's not what sonar listens for. They listen to the plant noise, and it's so good, they can pick out. You could put 100 subs in the water, and as long as we've heard them once before, we'll know name of every single sub. Yeah, they keep sound signatures on that shit. Yeah, everyone's a little bit different. So they listen to the reactor plant noise. So the biggest threat would be they'd have to be actively pinging all over the place to keep those Japanese subs away because they're very unlikely to hear anything from the electric batteries. The other thing that Nimitz would have in its favor is how fast she is. I'd keep that carrier going full throttle. It's not like you're going to run out of gas. I'd keep that carrier moving top speed. Well, you know, I mean, you don't they're have gonna to tell you she can do speed. 30 miles an hour. Oh, yeah, the carrier Nevis can go 35 miles an hour plus. Yeah, plus. She'll do 70 on the water. I don't think you have to keep her at top speed. You just have to keep her a little bit faster than the fleets coming at you. Oh, man, I'd have that thing making some serious wake. Absolutely. You're not going to catch me. She just, could just probably outrun on- the torpedoes that the Japanese fired. Yeah, probably. Just uh, just keep it out of. I mean, just keep it barely out of battleship range, and I think you're good because those big fucking well, shells will still dick up the Nimitz. Oh yeah, and the battleship range. I think the, the the Yamato wasn't part of the original attack force, but I think they had a couple of Congos, which means that their maximum range would have been just uh, around uh, sixteen miles. That's still and a long fucking range. It is a long way, but when you got all that. That air power. Up. Oh yeah, the air power. They could be fifty miles off and still just wreck that fleet. Oh yeah, not a problem. Not a problem at all. The biggest issue they would have is you're looking at six aircraft carriers and escorts. It's so the really- escorts. The escorts, I think, would probably take a few kills just from their anti-aircraft. Carrier. Oh yeah, they'd throw up enough. I would. I would imagine that. Full strike force launched by the Nimitz would probably suffer five, maybe ten percent attrition. But the biggest issue that the that the Nimitz would have, and this is why I'd want her moving at flank speed all the time, is they've only got a limited amount of ordnance and they got a lot of targets. This is a very target-rich environment. The best thing the Nimitz could do would be to take out those flat tops and get the hell out of there. Right. You tried to stick around to mop up the whole fleet, which would be a greedy kill. That would be sweet, but I prioritize. Would be yeah, dangerous. I prioritize the carriers and then secondary target the battleships, and then fuck the escort ships. Just avoid yeah. them and yeah. then cover and then mop up the air cover. Right. 
And then you Absolutely. pretty much decimated the, the Japanese fleet at that point. And yeah, World War II is a whole different war. Exactly. But we didn't get to see that. They appear, they, they go through the tunnel of love. They avoid the seagulls, <laughs> but they get through the tunnel of love. And it's December 5th, 1941. Yep. No, December 6th. I thought it was the 5th. uh, They got there the day before. I thought it was two days or a day and a half. All right. So December 6th, 1941. They go through, of course, all the radio communications on standard channels is out. Everything has disappeared. Pick up some AM radio broadcast. Yeah, they do on low band frequencies and get some archaic code coming out of (laughs) Pearl. And probably Midway and Guam. And they're just like, you know, fuck the what, man. What is up with this? And I love how you're bringing up Spartacus. I am Spartacus! <laughs> Captain Spartacus. God, that's one of my favorite movies with Kirk Douglas. That is a great one. Uh, but yeah, you got Captain Spartacus! And that chin. He could have taken out the carriers with his chin. I know. Just, just, and you know, that, 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 that man is still alive. Carlton Heston is still no, alive? Kirk Douglas. Or Kirk Douglas, yeah. Kirk Why Douglas, think still Heston? alive. Well, but you mentioned Charlton Heston. Side note, just a little tangential thing. There's a movie called Tough Guys where he, you know, Kirk Douglas and Charlton Heston play a couple of guys that have been locked up their whole lives, bank robbers, and they get paroled. They were uh, thrown in jail in the 1950s, late 40s, early 50s. They get out in the early 80s. <laughs> Kirk Douglas's character, the first thing he wants to when he gets out is to try a chicken McNugget. A chicken McNugget? Oh, my God. A chicken McNugget. That's the first thing he wants to try. Oh, man. But talk yeah. about setting yourself up for disappointment. Oh, I'm not, I, yeah. But anyway, I like when I break open a, a, any kind of a fried piece of chicken, I want to see the striations of the meat. I don't want to <laughs> see spongiform. <laughs> You crack into one of those things that looks like a, one of them damn uh, posturepedic beds. I know. <laughs> that does not look like chicken. They are addicting, though. You can uh, eat one, and then you just keep eating them. Oh, because... shit, they're so cheap, too. You I get know. 20 for 5 bucks. You put some of that special American carcinogenic sauce on there, and you're good to go. I can Dom taste Dom. the cancer. <laughs> Absolutely. But yeah, it's a good show. You should check out Tough Guys, not science fiction. Yeah, but so far we haven't really talked about science fiction. So the whole premise we of this... We went through time. We, yeah, right. The whole premise of this movie is uh, space-time and going back in time and then basically changing history. So or cat, are we a part of history? Oh, but history had to have started at some point. Otherwise, you've got a time loop. Chicken and the egg, baby. Chicken and the egg. So the CAG goes back, and apparently the Nimitz, the only reason that the Nimitz exists is because he got law or got stranded in Hawaii in 1941 from the Nimitz. So if, if he got stranded while serving aboard the Nimitz, how did he originally get on that island to be stranded to come up with the Nimitz? Oh, there's that paradox they talked about at the beginning of the film. Well, it's cause and effect. (laughs) I remember, I did not read this because it would have made my brain bleed. But I remember watching, because I'm I'm what you call a fan of science, not so much a practitioner. (laughs) I utilize it, and I'm a fan of it. And I remember, I want to say it was one of the most engaging, entertaining, and downright awesome individuals in modern science today, in my humble opinion, Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson. Right. And he was talking about how in quantum mechanics, sometimes effect can come before cause. So uh, maybe this is one of those things. Effect can become can come before cause. Yes. That not everything is linear. And then if you want to throw in here well, parallel. So I can see I can see in quantum mechanics where a f- cause and effect kind of exist in the same state. But But there's also s- perception. 
Maybe well, you've got something going on in the same state and where perceptions of it. Because technically, in my opinion, there's no such thing as the present. Everything's past or future. Because as soon as the present shows up, it's as soon as you understand it, it's the past. As soon as you recognize the moment, it's gone. Well, but that's that's going that that's the 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 fourth dimension, which is time. And time as we understand it is linear. It starts at the beginning and and moves on to the end. Uh, it flows in one direction. Um, but quantum mechanics doesn't really involve time. Um, it's it's kind of a it kind of fits into a it's, it's, well, it's smaller than thing. time. Yeah, it's a particle thing. Like how they were saying in that experiment that I was so jazzed about where they uh, took an electron and they fired it <clears throat> or sent it somewhere, but they thought they screwed up because the electron was still there, but then they found that there was another electron and anything that one was experiencing, the other one was mirroring. And they were like, what, five, six kilometers apart? Yeah, so that's... that. That's part of quantum mechanics. That's, um, oh, shit, I can't remember the exact term for that. Yeah. Aren't I remembering it correctly? They did that at CERN. It was one of the first experiments they did at CERN, wasn't it? Yeah, when I'm they not brought sure. it online? Not sure exactly what, what experiment that is. But, yeah, they, but, they've, they've experimented with... Um, some oh, kind of teleportation thing. I heard they got a, a statue of Shiva at the entrance of CERN. I think that is so cool. Statue of Shiva? Yeah, the Destroyer. Because if you look at Hinduism, Shiva the Destroyer, you can she's kind of like a forest fire. She doesn't just go out and destroy things. She's also, you, you have to have, it's like you've only got enough room in your closet for 10 shirts. Sorry. If you want a new shirt, you got to take out one. She goes in and she makes way for new, for the new discovery, for the new birth of or new creation or whatever. So like at CERN, they've got the goddess, the Hindu goddess of destruction. I think that's totally cool because they're getting rid of something to make something. Right. I think that's totally tight. Yeah. So for all the naysayers to say that CERN's going to destroy the Earth, maybe we will. Aha. It'll be new and better. Great metaphor. Yeah. So not quantum polarity. Quantum entanglement is what you're ah. talking about. Okay. And it, there we it go. Involves, um, it involves photons and. Oh, so it wasn't uh, electrons, it was photons. Yeah, it's photons, and it basically involves their the measuring of their physical uh, properties, like polarization. Right, where, right. Where one photon is, is horizontally polarized and the other is vertically. You can do things with photons that you can't do with electrons. They, they Like destroy asteroids when you're drawn into a wormhole because your phasers are tied into the warp engine. Right. There's nothing like a light torpedo to destroy. We're going to hit you with a whole lot of light. So they have. <laughs> <laughs> so they have. Uh, they have demonstrated quantum entanglement with electrons. Right. Um, okay. They've actually demonstrated quantum entanglement with things as large as buckyballs. Oh shit! Yeah. Wow. That would be cool. I know what we're doing next time we get together. Entangling some quantums? Buckyballs. Buckyballs. <laughs> I bet if we drink the right amount of whiskey, we'll have some entanglement. I bet we will. I bet we will. Probably start with our speech. <laughs> Still. I have a hard enough time with my native language. A little linguistic entanglement. <laughs> start talking in cursive. That's the way science should be enjoyed. <laughs> hey, it got us through college, right? We got through university. That's true. Twice. By the way, boys and girls. Yes, we did. Well, three times for me. But by the way, boys and girls, never vomit into a wastebasket that's just wire mesh. Yeah, it doesn't work very well. It just keeps the chunks back. <laughs> it's like a strainer. It is. It's a colander. The colander of love. But are there seagulls? I keep going back to that. I've been watching that a lot lately. It's funny. I really enjoy that. Bad lip reading. Yes. Those guys are the shit. They are fucking funny. But back to Captain Spartacus. But back to Captain Spartacus. He doesn't know what's going on because Lasky wants to know. I know. I do love that the movie kind of made fun of itself and, and 
talked about the the whole time paradox right at the beginning and then ended up with the yeah. time paradox. But it yeah, did. Captain Lasky or uh, Captain Lasky. <laughs> Captain. Yeah, Captain Spartacus. Um, what yeah, was the name of his character in Apocalypse Now? Who Martin Sheen's character? Yeah. Uh, Captain. Oh, because he was a captain. Yeah, he was a captain. Fuck, what was his name? But he was a different kind of captain. He was. He a, was a different kind of captain. He was a stressed out captain. He was stressed out. <laughs> he he was a he was a he was a fucking poster boy for Paxel. <laughs> he <laughs> he needed some hip. Captain Willard. There we go. Yeah. There we go. All right. All right. He was an army captain. Yeah. Yeah. Wasn't so wasn't quite the the same rank as as Captain. No, that would have made him. That would have made him a uh, first lieutenant. Yeah. U.S. Navy first lieutenant. But yeah, that's all right. He's he he already knows the military thing, and uh, I like how I like how was... he just didn't recognize. What the hell was up? But he seemed to have a better beat on things than everybody else in the military did. The Lasky. Oh, Lasky. Yeah. He I, yeah. So have... Lasky was a weird character. He he just kind of sat along for the ride and acted as sort of a an explainer character. Well, he's supposed to be an efficiency expert to find out how they can do things yeah. better. And I don't recall him coming up with one fucking way to do anything better. Yeah, efficiency expert is typically code for some sort of spook. Right. Especially whenever you hear, yeah, I'm a DOD systems analyst. Yeah, you're CIA spook is what you are. No, they don't spy. Whatever. So that's what I that's what I interpreted him as as at first was basically, you know, the U.S.'s kind of equivalent to a political officer, but, um, but then, I mean, as the movie went on, he basically just sat around and took up space and occasionally threw out some kind of weird ideas or explainers to the audience to figure out what was going on. Like the whole time paradox thing. What you're saying so nicely is that it could have been you or me. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Basically. It could have been anybody. It could have been Charlie the dog. And Pretty so much. then at the end, about three quarters of the way through the movie, whenever the whenever Captain Spartacus said we're going to strand the senator and his assistant on Hawaii, um, on this you know remote island in the Hawaiian chain, I was like, oh, so that's what's going on. Whoever whoever sent this guy on this mission to begin with was probably whoever's gets got stranded on that island. And I thought it might have been the senator or you right, know, maybe right. maybe the the secretary uh Laurel. And then it turns out the CAG gets stranded. Uh, and then that brought everything into into focus. And then the dog got left on the ship and the end of the movie I was like, oh, this was just an elaborate fucking plan to forty years later get their dog back. Well, that's what it pretty much comes down to, because you don't want to dick with the ASPCA, man. That's right. <laughs> I'm just going to leave it there. You don't want to mess with them. They make they make PETA look like nothing. I mean, the ASPCA, they, they will, they will, ooh, they bite. See where I went with that? See where I went with that? I, I saw that. They bite. Yeah, they bite. They bite. Yeah. You, the, you would uh, say their their bite is... Worse than worse than their bar. Tomcat. Ah, you took ah, it in a different direction. Tomcat. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> but yeah, no. Um, a lot of it will, and they had to get the. But see, I I kind of wonder. Like I had the whole thing where uh, the cag gets stranded. Right. He finds true love. You know, lives forty years. Helps design. You know, a lot of the systems on the Nimitz and whatnot. <laughs> What if his familiarity with it just kind of gave him the like, hey, I'm going to go back in time a week before, you know, Yahoo goes public and I'm going to invest or back to the future. I've got the little manual here, annual almanac, whatever that shows who's going to win the World Series for the next 20 years. And he's mainly just investing. And this is like a parallel universe, because as I understand it, you could have an infinite number of parallel universes. 
Yeah, so the many worlds theory says that yeah, any any decision or choice that could be made will be made and that that splits off into a, a parallel universe. So you have infinite universes. Um, and that's one of the things I really enjoy about this show. And I was so excited that we could do this one is because not only is it well acted and I love all the shots of the military stuff, but it makes it real. One of the things I truly enjoy about science fiction is when they take something and they find a way to tie it into concrete reality. Right. And I think that this movie did that very well. And I think that's what some of the science fiction authors from some of the golden era, like in the 40s and 50s, and to some lesser extent, the 60s, really did with their stories was they took an element of uh, the current times, whether it be a a current technology or uh, a a current uh, pop culture reference or a current political theme or whatever, and then put it into the future and basically told the story of humanity and how it would react. And it seems like, you know, humanity reacts in the future to that kind of situation a lot like they do in, in contemporary times. Sure. Like, I enjoyed how Firefly did that. Remember that episode where uh, the guy had the laser gun? Everybody oh, else man, had that slug was a long throwers. Time ago. Yeah. And then he ran out of juice. <laughs> right. Whoops. <laughs> Whoops. Should have went lithium instead of alkaline. Got to be hating that. Yeah. But yeah, I would I would give out of 10 stars for this movie, I'd give it a solid 8.5. Oh yeah, it's it's definitely a, it's definitely at least a 7 star for me. Um maybe an 8. But it was well acted. I thought they had it put together pretty neat. I like how they were able to bring in the future have it tied into the past, but then pull it out before anything major gets changed around. And honestly, one of my favorite scenes in the movie is when, uh, you know, Spartacus is up there and, you know, minus the tunic and the loincloth. Although I think a codpiece should be incorporated on all command level officers in the Navy. Absolutely. But have him up there and he's talking about how we are still a fleet, you know, a fleet warship of the United States Navy, answerable to the commander in chief of the United States of America. <laughs> and then Lasky comes by Franklin Delano <laughs> Roosevelt. Roosevelt. Yep. And then Spartacus has this reality moment. He's like, Well <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Because you know the Nimitz already had nukes. I got your Manhattan project swinging. <laughs> Yeah, the, the the Nimitz could have basically just totally rewritten World War II. I don't think oh, it would yeah. have taken another four years. I think it would have taken maybe another six months. It would have taken cruise time to Okinawa. Right. That's about all the range you'd need to get to the Japanese mainland, eliminate a couple of key strategic military facilities, and say, okay, do you guys still want to play? And then off to Europe. And the Cold War. Well, no, see, now, now you got to be careful because I think I just thought of another movie that we got to put on the list. Oh, what's that? Because I think, I think they would stop. I think they might have something to stop the Nimitz in Europe. What? Iron Sky. Oh, my God. Can we not do Iron Sky? Oh, my God. Is that really a sci fi show? Are you? No, it's, it's a documentary. It was an absolute documentary. Of course it's sci-fi. In fact, I'm wanting the new Iron Sky to come out. They keep teasing me on that. Okay, I'm putting it on the list. We gotta have Iron Sky, man. The Hanabu. And and don't forget Deglaka. You know that that's the next one that's gonna fucking come up. You're gonna pick the number that's... uh... Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, man, it's okay, because in Iron Sky, everything's good. You don't have Delano in there as the president. You got Sarah Palin. Oh, God. She could see the Nimitz from her back porch. Oh, God. Okay. <laughs> Dude, we need a MILF for president. Uh, can we get one with a brain? I don't know if my eyes would go that far up if we got a good MILF, but okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Hey, it's a science fiction show. Let's go ahead and, and, and make her a libertarian, too. Right. So, awards. Who gets your Black Lung Award? 
Black Lung Award. I don't remember anybody smoking. Oh, but you must have missed the scene where they called General Quarters. And there was that lone petty officer in the commissary that throws down that plexiglass screen. And right next to him is a beautifully stacked Multi cart, multiple cartons yes. of cigarettes in the in their little commissary. You're yes. right. I forgot about that. Yeah. That's, so just give it to the Nimitz itself. Well, I'm giving it to the the petty officer that lovingly stacked all those cartons. And yes. Oh, threw that's down back that in the protective day when you barrier. Could, yeah, you could smoke. They yeah. actually had a smoking lamp in the day. I don't even think they have a smoking lamp in the Navy anymore. Well, and they even had that announcement on the ship where they announced that smoking was allowed in designated areas only. <laughs> Apparently, there's right. some people smoking in non-designated areas. Hey, that happened once. The Navy's known for that. The USS Maine, oh, Havana yeah. Harbor, Cuba. A yeah. yep. couple of guys grabbing a fag down in the Ola powder room. Right, yeah. It's all right. good. That didn't work out well. Those dirty Spaniards. Oh, you know what didn't happen in this movie on the flight deck? What's that? A Looking bomb didn't fucking fall off the rack and explode, and people didn't That's dick true. around on the flight deck. They didn't j- dance around and jump around that and bullshit. That is true. Everything was and, very professional. And they didn't have any Tomcat pilots running around as security for their little rapid response units. That's true. They had Marines. They had, yes, they had actual professionally trained soldiers. Marines. Yeah. Pardon me, Marines. Still, absolutely. You are correct. All right. Who's got your head Lush Award? Lush Award. Um, I'm going to go with the Senator. Yep. Senator Scott Sweats Chapman gets my award. Oh, he'll sweat that scotch right out. Yep. Oh, yeah, man. you will. You know, he just smells like fucking scotch sweat. That's true. So, I had, a, had an uncle who smelled like scotch sweat. Yeah. <laughs> not good. Not good. And who's the player award? The player award? Oh, the CAG. Yep. How far were three for three? It's Impressive. gotta go to the CAG, man. He has that down. I mean, oh, yeah. The dude so, went back in time. Went back in time. And, got, and and stayed with her. Yeah, got stranded on a beach. Kind of makes you wonder if he planned that. And he managed to still keep the dog. Of course, I want to know what in the hell kind of explosive rounds they put in their flare gun. <laughs> well, that's probably the loose strap with the ordnance falling moment. <laughs> Oh man! Dude, what was one, happening? Was one little was, fucking one the, flare took out. What that was guy. happening? Yeah, was the, the, one of the guys on that chopper crew, right, was filling up his Zippo and left the Ronsonol <laughs> open. That dude, and that dude would have had to have been fucking made out of gasoline for that to happen. Right, right. Oh, well, that's another thing. 80s. Whenever the the zero strafed the Gatsby on the Pacific, and they said oh. the Gatsby blew up, they must have hit its fuel tank. The fuel in that ship or that boat, that yacht, probably would have been diesel. It wouldn't have blown up from a fucking bullet. No, yeah, absolutely. It was definitely diesel, I guarantee you. There's no way. You're not going to get the mileage out of gasoline like you would out of diesel. So, yeah, I'm not buying it because I didn't see any outboards. Those were inboard motors, so I'm assuming it's a diesel. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, you you know, you got to have the... it's part of the pew pew. <laughs> Got to have the pew pew, the sparks and the smoke and all that fun shit. All right. Last award, Purple Hippo. The Purple Hippo Award. I'm going to give it to the Corsair pilot. The Corsair we pilot. We saw what happened to him when, he, when they were first going into the past. And apparently he didn't look so well because the CAG was not happy with what he was looking at in that cockpit. Well, I thought the Corsair pilot the died. Well, I mean, he, he died, but how would he have died? I mean, what if he either aged, or what if he regressed? What if he wasn't even looking? I mean, the pilot was probably 24, 25 years old. Something went wrong or whatever, and he's actually just looking at, like, you know, sperm and ovum inside the helmet. <laughs> I mean, he, like, regressed so far back that he was just goo. 
<laughs> He's just no, a thought, stain. He was a love mark. I thought he like snapped his neck whenever he got uh, edited. Well, that's possible too, but you know that that wasn't. Eh, you know, eh, I, I'm just not. Uh, I, that wasn't a good thing. You can definitely tell that was that was a staged archival DOD footage of of a net catch on that Corsair. Right. That's that's not how it goes. But that is still, kinda, that is kind of cool. The emergency net catch that they've got. Oh yeah, and it's it's really cool. It really is. Um, very expensive, and you kind of get in trouble when you got to do it if there's not a damn good reason. But yeah, it's amazing. Just just there's several documentaries online for uh, the supercarriers and how they operate. I mean, just I was totally blown away uh, just watching how they feed six thousand people twenty four hours on those carriers. It's it's remarkable. But yeah. Anyway, if you, if you enjoy this movie or you like the Navy at all, I highly recommend you look at some documentaries. There's some great ones out there. A couple are actually on the Nimitz, the very same ship we see in this. Also, side note, um, we want to get uh, tip our hats to the Jolly Rogers, the F-14 Squadron with the skull and crossbones on their aircraft. They are not originally assigned to the Enterprise for this film. I'm assuming they had some kind of uh, competition. Amongst the various squadrons? No, they were they were assigned to the Nimitz during this time. Were they? Yeah, they were part of uh, uh, CVW-8. Okay. Uh, during this time. They were actually on the Nimitz a few times. Uh, but they were, they were on, they were assigned to the Nimitz during this time. I think they, I think they were assigned in 1979 to 1981 for this we, tour. But, but yeah, yeah. They, they were, they were native. That is awesome squadron. I, in, just it was a very enjoyable movie, a lot of fun, a lot of neat things. Made you think. Like I said, I'm giving it an eight five. We agree across the board on the awards. That's a first. Uh, well, what? my purple hippo award actually goes to the Nimitz for Nimitz. passing. Yeah, to the Nimitz itself for passing through the space time butthole twice. All right. Okay. So we do diverge on yeah, that one on the on the pu- purple hippo. Yeah. Because I'm thinking the purple hippo ought to be to an actual person with a brain. All right. Want to go to a machine that brings in a whole new dynamic. Well, I could have given it to the actual space-time butthole for pursuing the Nimitz. Or maybe that should have been my head lush, or my player award was the space-time butthole. And I don't know if it's appropriate you keep talking about buttholes with a Navy movie. Oh, I thought that was required. Ah, oh, no, no, no. It's politically correct. It's called an anus. I mentioned anuses in this. In this is episode. it anuses? Ani, anus, ani, ani, anus, 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 um, the dark hole of love. I don't know. <laughs> the brown eye. Make it wink at me. Yeah. Oh my God. So, let's pick our next movie. All right. All right. I got everything scrambled. You need to pick a number between two and 68. Oh, so close. (laughs) So close. I can almost taste it. Uh, Let's go with. Hey, 1941. Let's go to 41. 41. Ooh, this one's a good one. This one's one I put on. All right. So next episode, we will be discussing The Fifth Element. Oh, good movie. It is an excellent movie. Geek and good. Yes. So we got Bruce Willis and Mila Jojovich. Oh, yes. 1997's The Fifth Element. You can't miss Gary Oldman. Oh, that's true. Gary Oldman's in this. Dracula's in this. So in the next episode, in the colorful future, a cab driver unwillingly becomes the central figure in a search for a legendary cosmic weapon to keep evil and Mr. Zorg at bay. Directed by Luke Besson, it stars Bruce Willis, Mila Jojovich, and Gary Oldman. This is a good one. So I'm And it's got a singer with a 37 this. octave range. Wow. 
37 octaves. That's 37 a lot of octaves. octaves. Oh, yeah. There's going to be like dogs and satellites in orbit <laughs> fucking losing their shit when this dude gets up and sings. <sighs> oh, amazing. Absolutely amazing. And you will really come to appreciate defensive driving. Yes. Just saying, man. <laughs> you don't want to lose any points on the license. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Absolutely, me too. And this will end our episode for this week. So our intro and outro music is Welcome Home by Cambo. Podcrawl music is Snack Mix by Vanchette. If you like the show, please rate us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Podchaser, and Blueberry. You can leave us feedback at smokinganddrinkinginspace.com, on Twitter at at satis underscore podcast, or email us at smokinganddrinkinginspace at outlook.com. I'm Jason. I'm Red. And we'll talk to you next week. Have a good one, guys. The Great Gatsby floats upon in the serene Pacific as FDR (laughs) drones on the radio center. God damn it, I got to do that again. (laughs)